Welcome to the Skift Podcast, weekly conversations on global travel trend lines. I'm your host, Hannah Sampson. Here at Skift in Manhattan, the sound of hotel construction is our daily soundtrack. Literally, there's a hotel going up next door and we hear the noise all the time. There's more of that going on all over New York. The city has seen the number of visitors increase 67% since 2000. It topped 60 million last year. And Manhattan alone added 121 hotels since 2010. Brooklyn added another 42. And 15,000 more hotel rooms are expected in the city over the next five years, according to travel research firm STR. So just like we did last year for a massive story on Iceland over tourism, we decided to take a look at New York City's growth in visitors and hotels, the role that gentrification plays, the new ways that visitors are experiencing the city, and what really is sustainable. That story that we did is available online at skift.com slash new dash York dash city dash tourism dash and dash gentrification. That's a mouthful. On this episode of the Skip Podcast, we're talking about how New York City tourism is changing and how tourism is changing the city itself. Joining me is my colleague, Andrew Shavakman, the reporter who wrote both the Iceland and New York City stories. Andrew, thanks for joining me. Uh, Why was New York the focus of your next big deep dive were you just sick of traveling? Did you want to stay closer to home? We had known for a while we wanted to cover some aspect of tourism in New York City. And with a hotel going up right next to our office, we have a daily reminder of that growth. There was a little bit of debate about exactly how to approach the story. There was the option of delving into a particular city block, delving into a neighborhood, or doing a wider look. I thought it would be interesting to take the wider look because every neighborhood in New York is so different. Um, That's sort of where the idea came from to do this deep dive. And you, uh, I think you spent several weeks on this story. Um, Just touch on a little bit of what your like process was. I know you read a lot of academic (laughs) research papers. Yeah. uh, First, I did a lot of research reading scholarly articles, reading books on New York City history and gentrification. So when it came time to talk to people who know about this, I knew what I was talking about. And then it was a lot of just talking to people um, in areas all around tourism. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, let's actually start with a little history. Um, Talking about Times Square here, which these days is just a mob scene that that legitimate New Yorkers don't really like to go to, packed with tourists everywhere taking selfies. Um, but not not that long ago, like in both of our lifetimes, I think, um, that part of the city was like where you would go for a Broadway show and then hightail out of. Yeah. Um, so you talked to, um, to Kathy Duffy, who's the New York market director of public relations for Marriott International. And she gave some interesting backstory about the giant uh, Marriott Marquis that's there right in the heart of things. And that hotel opened um, in 1985. So let's hear Kathy. This was a huge risk for Bill Marriott to say we're going to build a hotel in Times Square. You know, all the, this is 
not the PR person talking, but the challenges uh, of the neighborhood at the time. You know, people came here uh, to visit or see a Broadway show and then they left. They did not linger. And so the marquee was really the pioneer for, you know, lack of a better word, the pioneer in being like the first brand to really uh, place itself in the middle of Times Square. And then we all know the rest, but other hotels followed. So it's kind of hard to think of like putting a hotel in Times Square as pioneering now, but um, there you have it. So what, what are like the Times Square's of today? Like what are the neighborhoods that are being transformed and that hotels are, are really seeing as the next frontier? I think it's tied into the overall economic development of the city in terms of neighborhoods that are having hotel growth. Of course, Williamsburg in Brooklyn is the one that comes to mind. But before Williamsburg, Long Island City and Queens experienced a lot of hotel growth uh, in the late 2000s you're starting to see the Lower East Side and sort of financial district, Lower Manhattan, really uh, take advantage of this building boom because there's a lot of business travelers who want to stay down there and now they're able to. And I think the city's destination marketing organization, um, NYC and company is really working to kind of foster that or encourage that kind of growth. They're like, they're trying to spread tourists beyond Times Square and the Empire State Building, um, the traditional places that you would expect to see them. And they're promoting Staten Island and Queens, corners of Queens beyond Long Island City. You spoke to Chris Haywood, who's Senior Vice President of Global Communications at NYC and Company. Um, Maybe you can kind of set up what they're doing there, and then we'll hear what he had to say. Sure. So a part of their marketing campaign is a mini site, I guess, showcasing different neighborhoods in all five boroughs of New York. And these are often lesser known neighborhoods. And this ties in to the organization's strategy of giving travelers something new, something different than the typical Manhattan experience. And also during the busy times, being able to encourage travelers to go to less visited places and sort of spread around that mass of tourism that hits the city. Yeah. I like how you kind of start out by throwing New York under the bus just a (laughs) tiny bit. I live here. I'm allowed to. (laughs) People think that New York is expensive. People think that New Yorkers are jerks. Are there any sort of, you know, are there any sort of struggles in getting the word out, making sure people sort of know sort of the real New York and sort of the variety that they could have when they come here? Yeah, it is a challenge, I will tell you. It is a challenge. We, we've been using a nomenclature, the new New York, in recent, in recent months uh, as we talk to global audiences and talk about New York. Really, to remind them, because many of them do have 100% brand awareness. They see New York in TV, they see New York in film, they see New York in pop culture. You know, whether it's Fantastic Beasts, the movie that just came out, um, the Harry Potter film, or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles uh, as our family ambassador. Uh, as New York, you know, they're seeing they're seeing all kinds of these, these images of New York. They see the morning shows um, now. Going to need even more attention on the city with um, with the new president um, having a residence here. So I mean, just overall, there's good, there's more there's more scrutiny of New York. I think the challenge for us really is educating the visitors, educating the trade about the continuous change of the destination and all the new things that there are on hand. So if you look at a project, and also just 
day outside of New York, what is New York? Many of them would think Midtown Manhattan. So we spent a lot of our energy really educating people on the basics of New York. Five boroughs, the ease of transportation, you know, the just the, the geographic layout of the destination and what each of those boroughs has to offer. So what's the best case scenario with that strategy? And, um, and if you're thinking about the potential negative impacts of tourism, like what could possibly go wrong? Well, I think there's only so much that NYC and company can do. The reality is that tr- a wide range of travelers come to New York and they all want different things. And by offering different types of neighborhoods with different kinds of experiences, that's good for the city. Um, the downside comes from neighborhoods changing to accommodate tourists who generally spend a lot of money and moving away from the types of businesses that residents actually need. Um, if you look at Williamsburg, the transformation of that neighborhood, you can see uh, you know, affordable dining options disappearing. You can see a lot of changes that are sort of meant to appeal to people that don't live in the neighborhood. And maybe that's great for some people, but it forces other people out of the neighborhood and changes the fabric of the city. And full disclosure, you have once lived in Williamsburg? I lived in Williamsburg for two years. And even over those two years, the rate of change was so intense that I started avoiding the neighborhood on the weekend (laughs) because it was full of tourists. And I've been living in New York for a while. And that's, that's not the kind of lifestyle I want. I want a neighborhood that I feel like people live in. Right. Where do you live now? Cobble Hill. How's that with the tourists? There's no tourists. It's great. Just a lot of baby strollers. <laughs> it's a whole different thing. Um, well, it sounds like it sounds like NYC and company is trying to be cognizant of minimizing negative impact. Or- yeah, I think the point of this isn't to wildly capitalize on tourist spending and sending a huge amount of tourists to a random neighborhood in Staten Island. (laughs) The goal is to support economic development in these neighborhoods and then also to make it easier for travelers to understand that New York is very diverse and you shouldn't be afraid to go into Brooklyn or Queens or Staten Island because people around the world have have varying images of New York. You know, you've got the New York of girls, you've got the New York of taxi driver, two different <laughs> things. Uh, and it, Chris spoke to you a little bit, Chris from NYZ and company um, spoke to you a little bit about being aware of that and about kind of the responsibility that they feel as they try to uh, promote tourism more broadly. Well, I think we're very bullish. We're very excited. We do want to make sure that we are continuing to be responsible with the tourism growth and that we try to do what we can to um, spread visitors out to all these new neighborhoods that are developing and be in lockstep with the economic development that's going on and making sure that as these new areas come online that we can, we can bring visitors there. I think Staten Island is the biggest opportunity for us. Sure. And then the seasonal growth as well, how do we spread them out into those areas to be sensitive to the tourism growth because we don't, we know that um, as tourism grows, there there may be challenges that come with it. And so how do we do that in a, in a responsible way? That's certainly something that we think about. Not to be a downer, but let's continue <laughs> to sound a cautionary note just for a little bit. Um, your piece really focuses on gentrification and how that 
empowers the tourism industry. So just kind of like explain that relationship and why it could be problematic and for whom. <laughs> put it's, all very, this, it's very complicated. Put all the scholarly articles okay. you read to good use in I think, English. I think there are two pieces. Um, I think as the city gets more expensive, the diversity of the people who live here, it becomes less diverse. Um, studies show that as a neighborhood sort of undergoes gentrification, generally college-educated white people move in. Um, and this has big ramifications for a city that's known to be wildly diverse. And you definitely see changes in neighborhoods like Bed-Stuy, um, even in Williamsburg, which uh, used to be way more diverse. And as these neighborhoods become safer, more tourists want to come. Businesses pop up to serve these tourists. And the fabric of the neighborhood has changed. You have people leaving. You have different kinds of businesses, uh, different kinds of services. Um, and I think it's not time to sound any panic, but I think there needs to be a lot more attention paid to sort of the interlocked forces here. Um, we're in a moment when the economy in New York is very good. People want to make money, so they're doing that. The question is what's going to happen if the tourists stop coming, if people can't afford their rents anymore, you know, you're going to miss that cheap bodega on the corner at that point. You might not right now. Mm -hmm. um, you talked to Kristen Lamoureux, who's associate dean of the Tisch Center for Hospitality and Tourism at NYU's School of Professional Studies about this intersection. And, um, and she's kind of studied the impact of tourism on communities around the world, right? Yeah, she's more of a global expert on this sort of thing. Not specifically a New York City expert, but I think the same rationale and lessons apply. You know, I always say, you know, tourism is incredibly beneficial, but it's also, it can also be, you know, very impactful, very negative. And I think it's really upon us, those in the tourism industry, to ensure that we're doing the best that we can to make sure that tourism isn't a destructive force. Yeah. Certainly, tourism shouldn't be, you know, detrimental to the communities in which it is. And it doesn't really matter if that's New York or Botswana, right? And then um, she, she gives, even though she's not necessarily an expert in New York, I feel like she has picked out some really um, good examples of where these forces are at play. Um, and, then, and then kind of gives some, some guidelines for the way to deal with that. I think the lesson is for New York City right now, and this will tie into conversation about Airbnb, but what tangible impact do these hotels have on their communities? And it's hard to tell right now because the building boom is still happening. There's not the time span to have perspective on this yet. It's happening now. Neighborhoods are shifting neighborhoods that were traditionally extremely residential are becoming more commercial because of this. And nobody really knows what's going to happen. Yeah. It's the strength of the regulations and the planning that goes in that really speaks to, you know, how much tourism can change a destination. The reality, though, is that it isn't often tourism in a vacuum. Right. You know, nice places to live are nice places to visit, you know, and the reality is Williamsburg is an example, you know, and I, you know, I can pick any, um, 
you know, Washington Heights is heading this way, right. or, you know, Harlem or, you know, Hoboken, you know. I mean, you know, as they become more attractive to live, and meaning that they have restaurants and shops and, you know, a night scene and a music scene and whatever, then they also become more attractive to visit. And unfortunately, um, without proper regulation in place, it often, that often equates to, you know, uh, you know, I don't, well, gentrification, right? So, so you know, you have um, places that are kind of losing a lot of their grit um, because that's, you know, people are moving there and obviously the, price, you know, property values are going up and more tourists are coming in and then, you know, you can, you know, you can get more for your rental and, you know, so it's just, it's, it's kind of not, it's, unfortunately, you can't just point to tourism and say tourism is the culprit, um, but at the same time, you know, there's a lot of monitoring that has to, that to happen. I, you know, I, if you could turn off tourism and no, you know, nobody ever travel, that would probably be, you know, beneficial in keeping these small these places, you know, unique and kind of, you know, to use Austin's term, you know, weird or whatever. Um, but the reality is, you know, A, you can't, and B, you wouldn't want to because, you know, there's so many cultural um, and social benefits of travel and, you know, sharing culture and sharing information that, you know, it's, it's just finding the balance. So you mentioned Airbnb and, and that's one of the big discussions that, people have when they talk about tourism growth and gentrification and finding that balance. Um, and you, so you wrote that, that inside Airbnb, which, which tracks listings has identified more than 40,000 active listings in New York city. And I guess nearly half of those were full home or full apartment rentals as opposed to shared listings where you're actually staying with residents. Right. Yeah. Um, so at the potential like good and bad there, both, for neighborhoods, residents, and then the hotel industry? When it comes to Airbnb, there are a few important factors. Like, think about why. Why would you put your apartment on Airbnb? What are the reasons? To make money. Right, to make money. So for all this talk about Airbnb facilitating sharing experiences, the people who are listing their homes, they're making money. And in a city like New York, where rent is really high, a lot of these people are putting their apartments on Airbnb because they need the money to pay rent. And so there are economic reasons in the city. Real estate prices have gone up. At the same time, there's so much tourism demand in New York City that even with this hotel building boom, demand for hotel rooms is incredibly high. 80 to 85% of the rooms in the city are full at any given time. And normally in hospitality, 60 to 65% full is where you want your hotel. So Airbnb is able to sort of capture this demand as well. And it's created a little bit of a cycle where people can't afford their rent. So they put their extra room on Airbnb. More tourists come into the neighborhood. The neighborhood begins to change a little. Um, people are priced out of their apartments and different kinds of restaurants, different kinds of services pop up. Um, and that's where it stands right now. There's a bit of a regulatory battle going on, although Airbnb wouldn't like me to describe it as a battle, but they're still figuring out exactly what 
role Airbnb is going to be allowed to play in the city. Right. For hotels, it seems like, I mean, it's not, if, if rooms are 85, you know, 80 to 85% full, the presence of Airbnb isn't necessarily pulling heads out of beds, but it's putting pressure on pricing and also forcing hotels to kind of, I guess, differentiate themselves or or make the case why they're going to be a better option, right? I mean, from the financial perspective, there has been a little bit of softness in the hotel industry in New York in the last year or so. But given the high level it's operating at, it's still incredibly good. And it's a great bet to build a hotel. Um, and you spoke to Adele Gutman, who's vice president of sales, revenue, and marketing for the Library Hotel Collection. And that's a small group of small hotels, right? Yep, boutique hotels, essentially. Our hotels are uh, 50 to 100 rooms. And if you can't fill 50 to 100 rooms in a great location in Manhattan, where, you know, you probably should be hotel business. Uh, you should be able to, to do that just fantastically every day. And the, the way that any hotel, not just our hotel, the only way for any hotel to be able to stand up in the marketplace with all the new competition and regardless of how many from from rooms hospitality i want to stay on the theme of new ways of doing standard things but take it to tours and activities because you focus on that a little bit in the story too um as a fairly new new yorker who's been here for a little over a year i've done a lot of what i would consider standard tours like audio tours of Ellis Island, um, guided visits to the 9-11 Museum and the Tenement Museum, which was actually awesome. Tenement Museum is great. Um, a okay walking Alexander Hamilton tour of the financial district. Um, informative, not necessarily groundbreaking, but you spoke to some people who are kind of taking new approaches to that. Um, one of them, Andrew Mason, right? Yep. Founded the service called Detour. They work with Airbnb. Uh, what is that? So Andrew Mason is one of the founders of Groupon, and his new project is essentially an app that lets you pay two to five bucks, and you download a tour onto your phone, and it's a walking tour, but it's guided by GPS. So basically, you, you download the Detour app, and you say, oh, I would like to go on a walking tour with Ken Burns. You, you pay your three bucks or whatever, you it tells you to walk to the base of the Brooklyn Bridge. 
And then all of a sudden, Ken Burns is talking to you. He tells you to, where to walk, sort of gives his perspective. Ken Burns loves the Brooklyn Bridge, <laughs> of course. And so to me, this is a very interesting way to move outside the established paradigm of being on a tour bus or the big red bus that we <laughs> see everywhere. It also appeals to younger people who want to decide what they want to do. They don't want to go on an all-day tour of all the sites. They say, oh, I want to go on a history of rap tour in the Bronx, and they can go do that. Mm. And they can really diversify the types of experiences they have. And this is what that Andrew had to say. Maybe a good way to put it is we we see what we're doing as taking what, uh, what companies like Airbnb started um, in in homes, this authentic experience where you feel like a local and you feel you're made to feel like you belong and you're an insider and taking it from the homes into the streets. Um, so giving people an experience where they can walk around with someone who's not just a tour guide, but somebody right. who is telling you a story in a way that only they are in a position to tell it. They're part of the history somehow. They have a perspective that would otherwise be inaccessible. Um, so, so that's what we're that's what we're trying to do. And um, and then the other big part of it is um, is letting people do these on their own terms. As a, and, and that means deciding who you're going to do it with and when you're going to do it, often without any planning. And I think all of those elements speak to general trends that we're seeing, the trend towards wanting a more authentic experience, first of all, um, and or something that's authentic and an experience, something that's interactive, we're actually doing something. Um, the next thing is not wanting to be with a group of tourists, right? And wanting to be with your friends or the people, the people that you are traveling with, not the, not just a random group of people from Nebraska. Um, and then doing it, doing it when you want, um, is really, I think, speaking to the trend of millennials, um, waiting longer and longer to plan. So that's an option for those uh, procrastinating millennials who want everything when they want it. Um, but there's also a a more kind of interactive, maybe immersive guided option, and that's through Museum Hack, who you also spoke to. Um, so how are they different? Like, what do they do? What's their mentality? It's pretty much the polar opposite of Detour. Museum Hack is in person with a very spirited tour guide who interacts with you and whisks you around a museum or a notable place. The idea is to be engaged completely instead of the typical museum walking tour where you plug in your headset and some guy talks to you about art history. So it's a different approach and Museum Act has been expanding around the country and they do some interesting stuff in New York. Beyond museums or only museums? They do some walking tours, but they're still experimenting. They're a fairly new company. And uh, and you talked to the founder, Nick Gray. Yeah, I talked to Nick. Today's audiences have to be entertained before they can be educated. Yeah. And in the past, you know, people would do these monumental tours 
for a museum, which was like the tour guide just spitting out facts. And those facts in an age of like Wikipedia and like online stuff, you know, the last 15 years have completely changed the reason why people would need a facilitator. Um, no longer just having the facts is impressive, right? Because I can just pull those facts up on my phone. Yeah. So we see it more as like, you know, it's like a Sherpa through the space, right? It's someone who's like a coach. They're helping manage your energy levels. They're telling you funny stories. They're keeping you engaged. For me, that, that's where the magic sauce comes in. All right. So you're looking at all of these like changing forces. You've got hotel development still going on. The push to get more tourists in lesser known corners. Airbnb still popular despite regulatory efforts by the city. Um, these kind of new generation of tours and activities. When you think about all of that, where do you see tourism here going in the next like 10 years? Do, do parts of Queens and Brooklyn become as crowded as Times Square? Um, do residents get priced out anymore or even more? Um, is there is there a way to kind of strike that balance of sustainability? I think everything you just said is right. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, in particular, I think about the potential downside of all this development. People want to visit New York City because it's not a cookie cutter, one size fits all city. You can go have very different experiences in different places. And as tourism spreads, you're going to have more businesses that appeal to tourists. And New York leaves a little bit of its identity. But the good thing about New York is every neighborhood has a different identity. So if you want to avoid the tourists, don't go to Williamsburg anymore. Uh, overall, I think another lesson that nobody wants to talk about is that in the US, the economy is doing really well. In New York, especially, what happens if we hit a recession or something happens that we can't control and tourism slows down? Uh, all these businesses that are relying on tourists will disappear and you'll you'll end up with neighborhoods that are sort of empty. And maybe then real New Yorkers will move back in. But it's easy to forget that a lot of neighborhoods that are now gentrifying were once really nice neighborhoods. And then the economy went bad and people moved out. So I look to the past maybe to think about what could happen in the future. All right. Defining the future of New York tourism here. At it's me. Uh, Andrew, thank you so much for, for joining me. Us. We're holding our first ever Skift Global Forum Europe on April 4th in London. Find out about this and other events at forum.skift.com. This show was produced by Ben Glowey, who can be found on Twitter at visible underscore sound. Assistant editor Sarah Enlow provided additional support. To subscribe to this podcast, search for Skift on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you find your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please leave a rating and a comment to help other listeners find us. Past episodes and a link to subscribe are online at podcast.skift.com. And this has been the Skift Podcast. Thanks for listening.